0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by Gary Edson, president of the COVID Collaborative, which is a comprehensive group of public health and science experts taking action against the COVID 19 pandemic. Gary has been an enormous part of some of the United States' biggest development initiatives. Gary established the Millennium Challenge Corporation, and he was one of the architects of it, to fight global poverty. He was one of the architects and helped launch PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, to tackle the global challenge of AIDS. He's worked on numerous initiatives to address global peacekeeping, nuclear nonproliferation, human trafficking, and neglected tropical diseases. Gary worked in the Bush 43 White House. I think you also served in the Bush 41 administration, worked in the nonprofit sector and has been a business entrepreneur. He's a leader in the social and public health sector and has been so for many years. Gary, I'm really glad that you took time out of your busy schedule to join us today. Thanks a lot.
1: No, it's a pleasure to be here. You did justice to a career that looks like a Jackson Pollock painting, so I appreciate it.
0: So how have the last year and a half been for you? Talk about the last year and a half. Talk about how has the COVID Collaborative been put together? And what are your hopes or what are your expectations for the COVID Collaborative? I'll tell you
1: how it came into being. John Bridgeland, our CEO, and I, as you may know, worked together for years. John ran the Domestic Policy Council in the White House while I was Deputy National Security Advisor and Deputy National Economic Advisor. And we launched the collaborative with the inspiration and support of Ray Chambers, a philanthropist who's held positions with the UN and the World Health Organization, and with whom John and I had worked to produce the first White House Summit on Malaria, which launched Malaria No more. To the three of us, COVID posed a critical question, namely, can a free and open society defend itself from an aggressively communicable disease? We believe then and we believe now that the answer is yes, if we recognize that we go up or down together as one people. Spread the virus in one state threatens all states. Defeating that threat is a calling for the nation as a whole. That's why we created the COVID Collaborative as a reflection of the nation itself. It's a bipartisan assembly of leaders across health, education and the economy, former heads of the CDC and FDA, former secretaries of education, defense, homeland security, health and human services, former directors of the White House Domestic Policy Council under Bush, Obama and Trump. Heads of all the leading public health associations, former governors and senators from Chris Christie and Bill Frist to Deval Patrick and Kathleen Sebelius, business groups like the Chamber and the Business Roundtable, and importantly, leaders representing the diversity of America, the heads of the NAACP, US, the Congress of American Indians, and others. So we like to say that our work is truly from the nation for the nation. We operate with a few guiding principles. First, we have no agenda except the safety of the public. Second, we focus on what John and I call shared work, broad areas of common interest and concern among the collaborative, and so our partners drive much of our work. Third, many have said that collaboration is an unnatural act among non-consenting adults, but we take collaboration seriously so that everything we do reflects a consensus of multiple experts and organizations, not a single point of view. And finally, we promote our partners, their brands and their work, so that COVID Collaborative is sort of like intel inside, the glue that isn't always obvious, but that holds things together. We've done, over the course of the past year or more, broad range of things, from our task force on infection prevention and control in schools, whose roadmap was highlighted in New York Times Magazine cover story on the CDC, Our partnership with the Ad Council on a vaccine education campaign, the largest public education campaign in U.S. history, our work focusing on increasing equitable access to vaccines in Black and Latinx communities, and our work that you know well with CSIS and others to close the global gap between vaccines and have-nots. So we, we continue to work in areas where we think we can have an impact and move
0: the needle. I think it's just amazing that you're doing this. I have several takeaways from my thousand Zoom calls for the last 18 months. I've done a thousand Zoom calls. I have five deep thoughts and that's related to this conversation. One is, what I've said is whatever your social capital was on March the 12th, 2020, is kind of sort of what your social capital is on the 8th of October 2021, that has been hard to meet new people. It's hard to network. You're sort of drawing upon your existing social capital. I know there are exceptions, but I think you know what I mean. The second is we're going to get some kind of partial economic divorce from China and we're going to see tectonic shifts in global supply chains over time. I think that's a speculative statement. It may or may not come true, but I suspect that's likely going to happen. The third is There's been more e-commerce, e-government, digital payments, and distance learning in the last 75 weeks than in the last 75 years. My fourth is the digital divide that's been kind of uncovered, accelerated, or exacerbated, whether it's in rural Minnesota, Mali, Moldova, or Malaysia, it's going to get closed. And it's either going to get closed by Huawei and ZTE, or it's going to get closed by somebody else. And I'd rather have it be somebody else. And then fifth, related to this conversation, sorry for the long punchline, there's going to be an Academy Awards of Countries at the end of 2023. And every country is going to get up and give one of those speeches, like, I want to thank my agent, I want to thank my mom, I want to thank the director. And they're going to give one of three speeches. The first speech could be, I want to thank Vladimir Putin for solving my vaccine problem. The second speech is, I want to thank the great helmsman, Xi Jinping, for solving my vaccine problem. Or the third speech, which is the speech I want, which is, I want to thank the United States of America and the West for solving my vaccine problem. There's only one of those speeches well, will be given by each of those countries. So things like the COVID collaborative, things like making sure COVAX goes well, other sorts of approaches that make sure that's the third speech, not one of the other two, is sort of high on my list. And that was one of the reasons why I reached out to you. So I just think what you're doing is really important. And it's really important because I want to be able to travel internationally again. I want to return to something like normalcy again. But I also think the social license to operate as a global hegemon is up for question if we don't answer the mail on solving people's COVID problem. That's my, my deep thought sitting here at a think tank. You buy that?
1: I think that that's right. My experience in global health is whether it's Ebola or HIV or now COVID, nothing of significance happens without U.S. leadership. And I think the U.S. is slowly but surely moving into that kind of role with the president announcing that he wants the United States to be the arsenal of vaccines. You know that we and our partners were at the forefront of advocating for a global COVID summit based on the goal of vaccinating 70 percent of the population of all countries by mid-2022. So we were thrilled when the president stepped up to host it a few weeks ago. but. There's a long way to go. I have to tell you about the summit, by the way, as Bush's summit Sherpa, uh, I have to say it was a peculiar experience. It was a four hour series of two minute monologues, highly stylized, a sort of summit kabuki. The good news is that leaders seem to align around the goal of vaccinating 70% of the population of all countries by the next UN General Assembly. Albeit we and the World Health Organization and others have advocated for doing that by mid-2022. The U.S. announced an additional 500 million Pfizer doses, so it leads the world in donations. Nothing was said or done about the urgent need to accelerate delivery of doses in the very near term. The U.S. promised additional support for vaccine distribution and delivery. Much more needs to be done. And they failed to signal the need to prioritize strengthening countries' vaccination capacity. For it's that and not supply, which is becoming the key constraint in getting vaccines from airports into arms. There was a lot of talk about providing life-saving measures now, oxygen tests, therapeutics, though there's a huge gap between needs and action. And there was no real progress on hammering out a truly coordinated multilateral plan, Dan meaning that the current architecture is still fragmented and leaderless. So that's a long way to go from summit rhetoric to shots in arms. The good thing is that the U.S. now owns more of the global response than before, and the summit started a process with follow-on convenings where the bar is clearly going to be progressively raised in successive action-forcing events. But one thing that's really troublesome is that the path from commitments to COVID containment still isn't clear and there's no real accountability. And you know how important accountability is on the global landscape. So that's why the COVID Collaborative is launching with our partners at Duke and with the support of several major global philanthropies. The COVID Global Accountability Platform, what we call COVID GAP, which will be the external independent hub to track progress on summit targets, goals and commitments, highlighting gaps and delineating what we hope it will be the swiftest path to ending the pandemic in 2022. It's going to be co-designed with input from multilateral and regional players. Importantly, it's also going to serve as a learning platform, empowering low and middle income countries to identify and access the support they need more quickly and effectively. We plan on launching the initial phase of this before the G20 to provide a baseline against which progress can be judged going forward. So there's an awful lot of work to be done. And to your point about three major things that countries can say, your Academy Awards, it's not yet time for the U.S. to take a bow. I think the performance is really now just starting.
0: You know, I 100 percent agree with that. And I don't want to get too political here, but I would argue, Gary, that it was colossally stupid to try and leave the WHO in the middle of pandemic. I think that at the end of the Trump administration, there were some really good people in the Trump administration who were trying to do the right thing. But there were some people who conducted what I would describe as budgetary pornography on the foreign aid budget. They were not interested in thinking about the whole conversation we've been having about getting vaccines over there. I think what they did on Operation Warp Speed was excellent, but they weren't thinking about some of these these bigger challenges. And so I think we lost a little bit of time, I would argue. I do think the Congress in a bipartisan way forced the Trump administration to fund COVAX and to force the Trump administration reluctantly to kind of engage internationally on this. You don't have to agree or disagree with this. My view is I think we lost a little bit of time I think we're making up for lost time. I think there's some serious people in the Biden Harris administration working on this. I think there's a bipartisan understanding among Republicans and Democrats and the Congress about the importance of this. We got a little bit of a do over because the Chinese vaccines and the Russian vaccines stink. I think that's the technical term. It meant the whole world has lost time, that this is my simplistic understanding or take on it. But if I look forward, I agree that no one can take a bow. We've got a lot of work we have to do. I was in the conversation today, In Mexico is only 35% of its population vaccinated. I mean, there's very large gaps, even in middle-income countries, and even in many developed countries where we're still, you know, we still have problems. So we got our work cut out for us.
1: As long as the virus is allowed to circulate unchecked in large swaths of the world, Africa, Asia, Latin America, The risk of new and more dangerous variants, including ones that can pierce vaccine immunity, is ever-present and increasingly likely. And that's why we really need to close this global gap between vaccine haves and have-nots.
0: This is, again, a simplistic understanding from Dan, but COVAX, which is this collective purchaser of vaccines has a bias for a variety of reasons towards what I'm going to describe as the Chevrolet vaccines, like the more expensive, non-complicated cold chain vaccines. So Moderna and Pfizer are a little bit more expensive and require a more complex cold chain. My understanding is, is that there's been some funniness or reluctance to say I don't we don't want to pay for Cadillac vaccines. We're looking for the Chevy for a variety of reasons in terms of thinking about equity or we've got a limited amount of money. It seems to me that there are some instances and some countries where we ought to apply Cadillac vaccines to teachers or firefighters or others right now and start getting vaccinated as opposed to waiting six months to, again, I'm being a little simplistic, Gary, but it seems as if there's been some delays and say, well, let's just get all the Chevy vaccines first. What's your reaction to what I just said?
1: Well, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. The good news is that the supply of high quality vaccines, the ones produced by manufacturers based in the US and in the EU, is more than sufficient. We project 7 billion doses available by the end of this year. We project another 7 billion doses available by mid 2022 with an additional 7 billion doses in the second half of 2022. That's more than enough to vaccinate the world. And importantly, there is sufficient supply to not only meet the need here domestically and in other high-income countries for vaccinations, boosters for vaccinating children, but also at the same time to donate and supply doses to vaccinate the rest of the world. This isn't an either or choice. It's an and both. I think the administration and others haven't made a strong enough case with the American people that this is not an act of charity. Yes, it's a mission of mercy, let's be clear, but it's not an act of charity alone. It is profoundly in our national interest to vaccinate the world. You mentioned at the outset you wanted to get back to traveling the world. Trade and travel and commerce are to ever have any chance of returning to the way they once were. The solution is to vaccinate the world. As long as the United States keeps that in mind, as long as we're clear that we have a strong national security interest in vaccinating the world, I think we should be at the forefront of that effort.
0: I would argue, Gary, that we've always conducted our foreign assistance in a frame of enlightened self-interest. It's the right thing to do, but it's also in our interest to do it. I'd like to travel. My view is all the fancy economic analysis we can talk about are basically irrelevant until everybody's vaccinated. You wanna have global trade again, you wanna travel and tourism, you wanna do an overseas wedding, you wanna study abroad, you wanna hike in some other country, you wanna go on a, a beach vacation, forget it until we deal with this issue. The vaccine that you waited for may become irrelevant if there's some new mutation Because these other folks are not vaccinated, it comes back and gets us, as you were talking about earlier. So I 100% agree with you. This is not just the right thing to do. But I would also argue the strategic argument I was making earlier about the, the Academy Awards of Countries, there's a public diplomacy component to this as well. We have a responsibility as a global leader. One of the reasons we remain a global leader is that we're seen as willing to help solve big global problems like Ebola, the tsunami in 2004, like HIV, AIDS, and now this. This is the greatest health challenge of the first half of the 21st century. I hope 30 years from now, we don't have another one of these things like that. I want to get to that. But I agree with you. I think we haven't made as strong a case as we could. I agree with that, Gary.
1: I also think, you know, it was interesting at the summit, the president said we need to go big. He was talking about the size of the problem and the magnitude of the solution. And he's absolutely right. But the United States still has yet to take that step to really go big and to really lead. Until we do, I think that things are going to go more slowly than they need to. But we'll see what happens. At the, you know, there's a series of meetings coming up now. We have the bank fund meetings shortly, then the G20 at the end of October, then the Paris Peace Forum in mid-November. And then there's supposed to be a foreign ministers meeting on COVID before the end of the year and another leaders summit in the first quarter of 2022. And as I said at the outset, I see those as action forcing events, and at each success of one, I think the bar is going to be raised and it should be raised. You know, the only way to get to 70% coverage by mid-2022 is to get to 40% by the end of this year. And the only way to get to 40% by the end of this year is to get to 10% now. And Africa is at 3%. So the delta between where we are and where we need to go is just mind boggling. But it's doable. And it's going to take real leadership. And yes, it's leadership from the US, but G7 and high income countries are going to need to step up too in a coordinated way.
0: I don't want to sit in my basement again for 18 months ever again. I'm hoping this is a once in a lifetime experience, Gary, this whole COVID experience. One of the things I'm interested in is the issue of investing in early warning systems. Could you tell me your take on what do we need to do to ensure that we don't have one of these things ever again? Like, don't we need to have something like a tsunami, an earthquake early warning system or a famine early warning system so we, we, we get ahead of this? There's an enormous amount that we
1: need to do. Surveillance is, is a major piece of that. Genomic surveillance is critically important. But one of the things, interestingly, that the summit did and that I think is going to be picked up at the G20 is the summit gave a powerful vote for the establishment of a pandemic preparedness financing facility, a fund to be housed at the World Bank with an initial capitalization of some $10 billion. There was a small down payment made by the U.S. at the summit toward that fund. I think it's going to be picked up at the G20 meeting, and we're going to see a fund like that established. And that fund is going to have to cover everything from public health authorities to health workforce, to testing, to genomic surveillance, a whole variety of things that have to occur to prevent the next pandemic from happening. And one of the best things I must say we could do is to have a COVID commission, like a 9-11 commission, that isn't a witch hunt to find out who did what wrong, but is it a truly thorough and rigorous look back and a look forward to how we need to be better prepared for the next pandemic. The COVID Collaborative is on the advisory council for the COVID Commission Planning Group, which is chaired by Phil Zellico, who, as you'll recall, ran the 9-11 Commission. And I hope that a commission like that gets off the ground so we can take a systematic Dispassionate look at how this evolved and importantly, what we need to put in place to prevent it from happening again. Yeah,
0: I 100% agree with that. Gary, I'm really grateful. You've been really generous with your time. I know you're quite busy. If people want to learn more about the COVID Collaborative, where can they go? COVIDcollaborative.us and all the work we've done is up on the
1: website. And we appreciate thoughts and suggestions as to where we can have an impact we're moving forward on a variety of fronts. On the one we were just talking about, the global front, we continue to build a robust partnership across multiple organizations and with a lot of thanks to CSIS for their participation.
0: Well, Gary, thanks again. Thanks for your public service and all that you're doing. This is really amazing stuff. It's really important. And I'm really grateful you would take time to speak with us today.
1: I appreciate it. Thanks for inviting me.